fundamentally, that's the issue. Who's going to be able to access these two medications and then any other medications that get approved by the FDA in the future? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Connecting ALS. I am your host, Jeremy Holden. It has been almost two years since Amelix Pharmaceuticals published data showing that AMX35, a combination of two existing drugs, is effective at treating ALS. The fight for approval and access to that drug has been ongoing ever since. But in recent weeks, there is new hope that people living with ALS will be able to discuss AMX35 as a possible treatment option with their healthcare teams. That is because the FDA recently announced plans to reconvene an advisory committee to consider even more evidence of the drug's efficacy at treating ALS, and that is a sign of hope. Now, we talked about FDA's decision in last week's episode, but since then, the ALS Association has filed a formal objection with the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, commonly known as ICER, over that industry stakeholder's flawed draft report on the cost-effectiveness of AMX35 and oral adarivone. And because this is a critical fight for our community, we are going to pick up our conversation where we left it last week with Dr. Neil Thacker, Chief Mission Officer of the ALS Association. Well, Dr. Thacker, thanks as always for your time with us this week on Connecting ALS. Hi, Jeremy. It's good to be here. Yeah, well, continuation of the conversation we had last week, obviously a lot happening this summer with respect to the fight for access and approval of AMX35. Talked a little bit last week about the move to reconvene the advisory committee in September and what that means. Since we last spoke, though, Dr. Thacker, the ALS Association has filed its formal objection to ICER's draft analysis of the cost-effectiveness of both AMX35 and the oral version of Adaravone. And I kind of want to start at the end uh, in the comments or with our conclusion. And in the comments that the association filed, you know, we're basically urging ICER not to finalize its report. That, that's right. Um, and as we can discuss, we have concerns about the methodology and the data they're using to um, reach a conclusion. And we just don't feel they have sufficient data or the right methods to be working in the ALS space at this time. Well, let's start with one of those data points that we've talked about on this uh, program with you and, and, and in some other conversations in the past, and, and that is ICER's attempt to evaluate or assess the quality of life that is gained with the therapy. We talked earlier about the use of qualities, which have been declared um, inherently discriminatory by the National Council on Disabilities, but now we have the report, ICER's draft report about how they go about assessing value of life. So were the fears that we had of what we thought they were going to do, is, does that line up with what they did? What, what do we know today that maybe we didn't know a month ago? Yeah, I, you're bringing up a really important point. So the, the word quality is an acronym. It uh, stands for quality adjusted life years. And it's ICER's equivalent to I, ICER's attempt to draw an equivalence in life across multiple diseases by valuing the life according to what they think the quality of that life is. So if someone has a terrible quality of life, a year of their life counts for less than uh, someone who has a high quality of life. And 
terrible quality of life, of course, is a very subjective thing that they're attempting to define through a survey. And most of the folks who are surveyed about the quality of life and what they think is based on disease states, levels of disability and functioning that people may have no experience with. And our certainly our ALS community has gone through this directly. It's really hard what it might be like to live life in a wheelchair or to have difficulty communicating or difficulty feeding yourself or some of the other challenges that many of the people we serve face. Until you get close to getting there and you start to think about it, you start to plan for it and you start to make it work. And lots of people with ALS that we serve have very rich, meaningful lives. And that is hard to imagine about how to have a rich and meaningful life if you've never had any experience with that disease. So we, we are very concerned about this approach. We're also concerned, and I think, frankly, all of us, uh, I know you, Jeremy, when we talked about this uh, you know, in, in our staff meetings and stuff, we're all a little offended, well, actually pretty angry, yeah. that some organization could say one person's year of life is worth less or more than another person's year of life. And that's not just the staff at the association. That's not just some of the volunteers that we've been working with us on this issue. That's also the White House Council on Disabilities who issued a statement saying the quality method, uh, the quality adjusted life year method is inherently discriminatory and problematic. It gets a little bit worse than that. Uh, There's more issues related to that. But maybe before we get to that part, the inclusivity part of the data they're using to generate those surveys, we should talk about their workaround. Yes. So the ICER group has heard from lots of different groups, uh, disease groups, that the quality methodology is, is problematic. So they created an alternative uh, called EVLYGs. Lots of acronyms. Lots of acronyms, that's right. Uh, which is um, equal value of life years gained. Okay. And this is... Sorry for the paper shuffling, because this is very technical. Yeah. And we spent a long time working with our consultants trying to figure out exactly how ICER calculates equal value life years gained. Because uh, what they're trying to do is say, we don't, we'll, we'll do another alternate methodology where it's not based on quality of life years, but just based on absolute time that people get to live, the survival impact of a drug. So that's what they said, but that's not quite what they do. So this is really kind of weird. I'll, I'll walk you through it. So okay. the equal value of life years gained is the idea that a year is a year, no matter what disease space you're in. So a year of diabetes improvements, a year of life, if you have diabetes that you get from a drug is the same as a year of life um, that you would get if you take an ALS drug. That's the concept that you know makes some sense. A, a month is a month, a year is a year. That's not what it is. It's equal value of life years gained. So they're trying to draw this equivalent. So what they do is they say, if you get 12 months of benefit from a drug, they discount it by 15% for some reason. And so it's actually about 10.2 months. And I can see you're making faces like what's going on, but that's that's part of what they do. And then they add an adjustment based on the quality of life measure. So that quality does play a role in here. And, you know, if an an ALS drug adds six months of calendar time, 
that doesn't mean that that EVLYG is equal to six months. And if there is an, a diabetes drug that adds six months and uh, an ALS drug that adds six months of calendar time, that doesn't mean the EVLYGs will be the same. And if the EVLYGs for diabetes is one year and the EVLYG for ALS is one year, it doesn't mean that they add the same number of calendar months of life. So it's very confusing. It does add in that quality correction factor in there for some reason. So all the discriminatory aspects of qualities get added back in. And then on top of that, length of life is not the same for everyone. Right. If you have a disease like diabetes and you may have a expected lifespan of an additional 30 or 40 years, adding six months onto your life is not the same thing as if you have a disease like ALS with an expected lifespan of let's say five years, that six months probably means a lot more to you. It's more important. So it's not equal right. and it's not clear and it's not actual years gained. And it does bring in all of the discriminatory and troublesome aspects of the quality model. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing as you, as you were laying it out, that it sounds like something that's both not equal and not a very effective workaround if it does in fact bring in the very problem that it's purporting to work around. Dr. Thacker, you mentioned an inclusivity issue. What's going on there? Right. So it, as I said, it, it does get worse than that. So that we, ICER is relying on several key pieces of data to, to make its determination about the potential price of a drug. So one of the things they pay careful attention to are the clinical trial data and any peer-reviewed published data about the drugs in question. And with oral adarivone, there are published data, of course, for the IV adarivone, the, the original version, that they're using to infer questions about value of the oral version because the drugs are supposed to be biologically the same. Okay. With Amlix, there's less evidence but they pay really careful attention to that clinical trial evidence. So that's only half the equation. The other half of the equation are these measures of benefit that we've been talking about and these measures of cost. So what's the burden of disease, which can be you know, defined in qualities or evidence equal value life years gained, and they use them to help determine a price. The challenge is the measures of burden in the ALS space aren't very good. We're a rare disease, the association has been putting most of its effort into drug development. The other ALS charities have been putting most of their effort into drug development. The federal government has been putting most of its effort into figuring out what ALS is and what causes it and how to stop it. And we haven't, as a community, put a lot of effort into figuring out how much it costs to have ALS, what the real impacts of burden are, and how those costs and burden change as the disease progresses. So they've been working on sparse data. As I mentioned, they have these quality data sets, which are primarily com coming from people who do not have ALS or do not have uh, serious disabilities. And so they're, the, the folks in that, in that subject pool, the folks participating in those surveys, don't represent the ALS community. So we complained about that in some earlier drafts, and they found a paper that had some like 250 people who were living with ALS and they got to ask them some quality of life questions. The challenge with that data was not only is it over a decade old, but it's based in the UK. And the financial burdens of having ALS are really depend on the health insurance system you're in. And it really depends on the kinds of support you can get to come into your home. So a simple thing like 
helping someone get ready in the morning, getting showered, uh, having breakfast, getting dressed. That can be a really intense, complicated time for a family with ALS and kids and trying to get everything done. But it can be a lot easier if there's some insurance coverage that will let an attendant come in and help with some of those activities. Sure. That may happen in, in some parts of the U.S. with some insurance systems, but it may happen in different ways in the U.K. And so the U.K. experience is different than the American experience. If you have enough supports, it may be easier for your family or your caregiver to work outside of the home, to go to the grocery store, uh, have respite care, to do all the things that families have to do. So are those data equivalent? Probably not. I think American data is much more representative of the experience of people with ALS. Medicare data, uh, people enrolled in Medicare is probably the best equivalent because our long-term care systems, as, as you know, in the U.S. are not very good. There's another aspect of that about what the cost of the disease is, just in terms of dollar outlays, because the idea being that if a drug helps someone um, maintain their function, then there's less expenses that the family receives. Right. And we don't have great published data on that in the United States either. So they pull data from South Korea. And so they have uh, cost data for South Korean families, which is great for South Korea. But again, their health system is different from ours. Uh, their economy works in different ways. People work in different ways. That's just not equivalent. And so how can they use that data in a, an incredible way to formulate drug costs in the American health system? That data may be great for identifying British drug costs or uh, South Korean drug costs, but not, not American drug costs. ICER pays really close attention to who's included in a clinical trial when they're determining the benefit side of a drug, but when they're determining the cost side of the drug, they don't seem to be paying a lot of attention to who's included in their cost data. And that's a fundamental flaw of the model. Yeah, and I, I want to dig a little bit deeper into a, one of the, another point that you laid out in terms of, so yes, you looking at the impacts in a different healthcare system. I, I get that. It makes all the sense in the world to me. You, you also touch on at least one of those reports being 10 years old. And it just strikes me that the experience of living with ALS is different today than it was 10 years ago. And the work is going toward it being different 10 years from now than it is today. So an important point, I think, to just kind of underscore some of the problems with using outdated data, particularly when you're asking about issues such as what is your quality of life? Yeah, that's a really good point. And it, there's another odd thing about this report is they have a strong conclusion that Adarivone is not effective. And yet Adarivone is part of the standard of care that's included in the AMLOX trial, just as it is in all of the other uh, ongoing ALS clinical trials now as well. And so what does it mean to them to put so much focus on the integrity of the AMLIX trial if one of the drugs that's standard of care they feel is not actually standard of care or shouldn't be standard of care. It just gets, you know, the, the model ends up tripping over itself with those different convolutions of how these, these pieces fit together. So you lay out a number of troubling problems with the data that's being used to create this assessment. Um, what specifically now is the association asking ICER to do? What, in terms of what happens next, Jeremy, is that this, this as you mentioned, is a draft report. And there, ICER is convening a committee of experts 
most of whom have been working with ISO on a number of things, and they have a, a couple of people who have more experience with ALS, but only a couple, to review the report and provide feedback. ICER asked a lot of questions of their uh, reviewers. That's going to be part of that conversation in August. They are asking questions about the clinical trial data. They are not asking questions about the other side of the data, the qualities, the evidence value life years gained, the data problems that we mentioned about using foreign sources or dated sources to generate estimates of cost and burden. And we feel like they have to pay attention to both sides of their equation. So what we would like them to do is ask their reviewers to judge the quality of the data that's used in the price side. Is there sufficient evidence to generate their cost data, their quality adjusted life year data, their equal value life year gain data in the report? And if there isn't, what good is their model? Uh, and then the second is if people take their model seriously, that according to their valuation, they're suggesting oral aderivone doesn't have value. And they even said in the report, there may be a subset of people who are obtaining some benefit from the drug, but that subset is small enough that it's okay if the drug is not covered by a payer. And so that's, that's a question that the reviewer should be specifically asked. Is the evidence base that they have here, is the report strong enough to justify Americans with ALS losing access to an FDA-approved treatment, uh, in this case, a Aderivone, but in general, do they are they confident enough in their model? Is the model good enough to deny people access to care? That's a really serious question, but fundamentally, that's the issue. Who's going to be able to access these, these two medications? And then um, ICER, once they're here, they don't leave. So any other medications that get approved by the FDA in the future. You know, and you talk about medications that could get approved in the future. And you, you mentioned that an approved drug, an existing drug might have a benefit on a, on a small subset of the ALS community. And, and one of the things that I've heard a bit about, and I'm starting to internalize, is this idea of heterogeneity in the ALS community and the potential for therapeutic cocktails as more drugs come online. And it, it just strikes me that taking a very limiting approach in terms of what adds value could have a chilling effect on what the standard of care looks like five years from now. That's uh, really well stated. We don't expect that every drug would work for everyone in the same way. And we would expect that multiple drugs may work in different ways for different people. And so combinations could be really important. One of the things we're concerned about uh, at the association is this concept of fail-first drugs or step therapy, where you have to try a drug that's cheaper and not see an effect before you can get on another drug, or you have to go through some long documentation or paperwork process to get approval. And in a fast-progressing disease like ALS, a yeah. two-month wait, a three-month wait to get all the paperwork straightened out is not a really good idea at all. And if you have to try another drug for 90 days, that adds even more time onto uh, these approval processes. That's our biggest concern. ICER has this idea that if you set a price of a drug, that everyone will pay that price and then everyone gets the access to that drug. But that's not how, again, how American healthcare works. There's a price set for a drug and then people will get that price negotiated by a whole bunch of different people. 
And so the patient and the insurer all pay different prices for different drugs, depending on where they live and what plan they're on. But even more importantly, just because you're able to pay that drug, pay for that drug, because you have it written in your plan that you're allowed to get that drug does not mean you get it. You have to jump through a lot of different steps. Your clinician has to jump through steps to get that drug. One of the things that we've talked about on this show is the kind of robustness of the drug pipeline right now relative to years past. Is there concern or or how much concern should folks have that reports like the one that ICER has, has put out, the draft report, could have a chilling effect on companies investigating future therapies? I think that's a cause for concern. And one of the things we're doing is we're ramping up our advocacy programs across uh, different states across the country to help payers, state insurance commissioners understand that the quality of data that's driving these this ISA recommendation, if they stick with it, is really poor. And we don't have a lot of confidence that ISA is going to go away and wait for proper cost data before they make improvements in the ALS space. Maybe, maybe that'll happen, but that doesn't seem likely. So we are concerned about that. We're also starting to think hard about the different kinds of Medicare supplemental insurances and Medigap bills and other kinds of issues which affect people's ability to access medication. Again, both the price and the process to get to get drugs. And these are really complex policies that we're wading into in lots of different ways. And the, just the broad theme is we want people to be able to access the medication that's going to help them. Uh, and that's an increasing focus of our programs going forward. And conversations around uh, Medigap bills and step therapies um, are things that I look forward to bringing to listeners down the road. And of course, folks can go back a couple of weeks and listen to our conversation around prior authorizations and, and the impact that that can have on, on frustrating people's access to care that their doctors think is right for them. Dr. Thacker, before I let you go, any closing thoughts on where things stand today with respect to AMX35? Well, we did get some, what I hope is good news. It seems very positive that the FDA is going to have an additional advisory committee meeting, and we're still waiting for details on who's going to be there and how long it's going to be and so forth. And then they're going to have their announcement, I think, at the end of of September. The fact that they're having an additional advisory committee meeting and the fact that they're identifying the focus of that meeting is some of the new research that Amelix had published after the previous one, I think is good news. They have the opportunity now to ask the right questions right. Uh, the FDA does of their reviewers. Hopefully they'll take that opportunity. So we'll have to see how that, that goes. So we're expecting news in August. We're expecting additional news in September. So I have to tell you, Dr. Thacker, this may not be the last time we ask you to come on and, and walk us through what's happening. So um, appreciate your time as always. Thank you, Jeremy. Appreciate it. I want to thank my guest this week, Dr. Neil Thacker. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. And while you're at it, rate and review Connecting ALS wherever you listen to podcasts. It is a great way for us to find new listeners. We will share links to resources in the show notes to help you make sure that promising new treatments are approved and made accessible to people with ALS with the urgency required. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car. Post-production by Garrett Tiedemann. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Supervised by David Hoffman. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for tuning in. 
We'll connect with you again soon. Mm-hmm.